Hello, and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 16th, 2023. The podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. United Auto Workers strikes against the big three U.S. vehicle makers. The Dominican Republic closes its border with Haiti. Hunter Biden is indicted on federal gun charges. Yemen's Houthi delegation travels to Riyadh for ceasefire talks. Ukraine claims recapture of a key village in Donetsk. While Zelensky plans a White House meeting with President Biden. Three men are acquitted in the kidnapping plot of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The U.S. Supreme Court limits government contacts with social media organizations. The European Central Bank raises interest rates to an all-time high. And $1 billion in Captagon amphetamines are confiscated in Dubai. In our top story, United Auto Workers simultaneously strikes at three factories. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, The Guardian, NPR Online News, BBC News and Forbes. The United Auto Workers, or UAW Union, Friday began a simultaneous strike at three factories owned by General Motors, Ford Motor, and Chrysler owner Stellantis. Union President Sean Fain said more plants could face strikes if the manufacturers don't present better offers. Among the union's demands is a wage increase of 36% over four years, while the companies have offered around 17.5% to 20%. President Joe Biden voiced support for the workers during a brief appearance at the White House, saying that he understands their frustrations. He called for the record profits to be shared by record contracts for the UAW. This is the first time ever that the UAW, which represents 150,000 union members, has staged a strike against all three companies at once. Currently, around 13,000 workers are striking. The Anderson Economic Group estimates that if all UAW workers stage a 10-day strike, It would cost the three companies approximately $1 billion and cost the economy more than $5 billion. The strike began early Friday morning in the U.S. UAW characterized the action as, quote, our generation's defining moment for working-class Americans. Eric just laid out the facts to that first story, and I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins, beginning with a Republican narrative provided by Daily Caller. Democrats like to boast about how pro-union they are, but that unconditional support has empowered this all-too-powerful union to implement an economy-stifling strike. If Biden really had the workers' well-being in mind, his administration would have done more to prevent this walkout. This is going to crush the economy and, hopefully, his re-election chances. As expected, a Democratic narrative. It's coming from Alternet. Republicans have stood by for decades while these companies' profits and executive compensation have skyrocketed, far outpacing employee compensation and benefits. President Joe Biden and Democrats are doing what they can to help the workers, but the only ones to blame here are the exploitive companies and their GOP allies. The Dominican Republic closes its borders with Haiti. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, Voice of America, Al Jazeera, Jamaican Observer, and France 24. The Dominican Republic on Friday closed all land, air, and sea borders with neighboring Haiti as a dispute over the construction of a canal on the Haitian side of a shared river has worsened. This comes as Dominican President Louise Abinader announced Thursday a total border shutdown that will last, quote, as long as necessary. 
with backing from their military and police forces, while talks with the Haitian government continue. The closure is a response to a canal being evacuated by a farming group in Haiti that would use the water from the Massacre River, which runs along the border between countries that share the island of Hispaniola. Dominican officials claim that the project will divert water from the river, violating the 1929 Treaty of Peace, Friendship, and Arbitration. Santo Domingo last fully closed its border following the killing of Haitian President Jovenel Moise in 2021. Port-au-Prince reacted on Friday by stressing it has the right to decide how to exploit its natural resources in accordance with the 1929 agreement and vowing to take all necessary measures to protect the interests of its people. Haiti has been plagued by an economic and political crisis for years, making it one of the world's poorest nations. A rise in gang violence has exacerbated the crisis, prompting thousands of Haitians to flee their homeland and seek work in the more prosperous Dominican Republic, which has toughened its immigration policy in response. Adam, thanks for laying out the facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A, coming from Washington Post. The world is failing the Haitian people. And this dispute is yet another example of it. The Dominican government's unilateral decision to close the border essentially traps Haitians who are already facing extreme levels of violence and struggling to feed their families and access clean water and health care in a move to politically capitalize on anti-Haitian sentiments ahead of next year's election. And we're going to continue the spin with a narrative B provided by Dominican Today. The border closure is a necessary measure that must remain in effect while the Haitian government, which has problems controlling its territory, fails to prevent the building of this provocative canal to divert water from the Massacre River. Talks to address this ongoing dispute are underway, and hopefully Santo Domingo will soon come to good terms with Port-au-Prince. And Metaculous Prediction Community is giving us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Haiti will become a World Bank upper-middle-income country by January of 2050. Hunter Biden has been indicted on federal gun charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Financial Times, BBC News, and NBC. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was indicted Thursday on three federal gun charges. This comes less than two months after a plea agreement over tax and gun charges fell apart. The charges include making false statements to the seller of a firearm and the possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. According to the indictment, Hunter falsely filled out a federal firearms form by stating that he wasn't, quote, an unlawful user of, nor was he, quote, addicted to any stimulant narcotic drug when he purchased a Colt Cobra Special Revolver in October of 2018. If convicted, he will face a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison, five years for lying to a firearm seller, and 10 years each for making false statements on a federal form for possessing a firearm. The indictment comes as Republicans in the House of Representatives have launched an impeachment inquiry into President Biden, accusing him of lying about his involvement in his son's business dealings during his tenure as vice president. When asked if any additional charges or indictments against Hunter could be expected, special counsel David Weiss's spokesman stated that the investigation was continuing. Thank you for the facts, Eric. We're going to start the spins with a Democratic narrative provided by Wall Street Journal. Hunter Biden is cooperating fully with this witch hunt of an investigation and indictment. The Republicans are desperate to take any avenue possible to bring frivolous charges against him and link President Biden to alleged misconduct, even if that means fabricating ridiculous stories and trumping charges. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Washington Post. Hunter Biden knowingly lied on a federal form, 
and purchased a firearm while addicted to a controlled substance. He could have seriously injured someone while incapacitated by drugs and deserves to be punished to the full extent of the law. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion. They think that there's a 10% chance that Joe Biden will no longer be president before January 20th, 2025. Eric, this, see, I mean, I, I don't know. They might actually have charges against him. They might actually have evidence or, or whatnot. But I seem to have seen lots of a video of, of a, another ex-president's son on social media seemingly to be intoxicated in some sort of substance waving guns around airsoft guns is that what they are yeah (laughs) (laughs) in a special report yemen's houthis visit saudi arabia for ceasefire talks and here are the facts as agreed upon by middle east monitor arab news the slasant daily i-24 news and abc news A delegation of Yemen's Houthis rebels arrived in Riyadh on Thursday at the invitation of Saudi Arabia to continue ceasefire talks aimed at ending the long-running war in Yemen, according to Houthi and Saudi news sources. According to Riyadh, the talks are aimed at a permanent and comprehensive ceasefire and a lasting political solution acceptable to all Yemeni parties. The talks reportedly include payments to Yemeni employees, reconstruction efforts, and the opening of Houthi-controlled airports and ports. Mahdi al-Mashat, head of the Houthis' Supreme Political Council, said the 10-member Houthi delegation is visiting the kingdom, quote, to continue consultations with the Saudi side during the first visit by Houthi officials in Saudi Arabia since the war erupted. Also on Thursday, a delegation from Oman, which is acting as a mediator between the warring parties, arrived at the Houthi-held Yemeni capital to hold talks with Houthi leaders on pursuing a ceasefire with the Saudi-backed Yemeni government, according to local media. The six-month truth that expired last October is still largely in place. The first round of Oman-brokered consultations between Riyadh and Sanae, which run in parallel with UN mediation efforts, was held in April when Saudi envoys visited the Yemeni capital. The Yemen conflict erupted in 2014 when the Houthis captured Sanae and much of the country's north, eventually forcing the internationally recognized government into exile in Saudi Arabia. Over 150,000 people have reportedly been killed in the war, which has resulted in one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Those were the facts, and we begin our round of spins with an establishment critical narrative. It's coming from Press TV. It's an encouraging signal that the Houthis and the Saudis are resuming their ceasefire talks in Riyadh. Yet, it's important to remember the events that triggered the world's most humanitarian crisis. It was Saudi Arabia, with massive support from its Western allies, that launched a brutal campaign against Yemen in 2015 to reinstall the Saudi puppet government. Finally, the recent Chinese-brokered resumption of diplomatic relations between the kingdom and Iran gave new momentum to the peace process in Yemen. And that's going to be countered with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Gulf Times. The fact that the Saudis and the Houthis are continuing talks in Riyadh to reach a lasting ceasefire is also an achievement of sustained U.S. mediation efforts over the past two years. Now it's up to the Iran-backed Houthis to seize the unique opportunity to demonstrate their willingness to end the crisis in talks with the official Yemeni government. Only successful Yemeni talks will lead to lasting peace, and Washington will remain committed to helping Yemen become a prosperous country free of foreign interference. This story has generated a third narrative, it's Narrative C, coming from Bloomberg. Despite the now-resumed talks, peace is far from being achieved. 
This is in part due to the deepening rift between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which now support rival groups in Yemen fighting for control of the strategically important country and its oil resources. While the UAE supports secessionist forces seeking to establish an independent state in southern Yemen, Saudi Arabia views Yemen's unity as critical to its national security. The growing regional rivalry between Abu Dhabi and Riyadh threatens the recent efforts for permanent peace. Ukraine claims a recapture of a Donetsk village. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press and Ukrainska Pravda. Ukraine claimed to have recaptured Andrivka on Friday, a village in Donetsk roughly 10 kilometers or 6 miles south of the Russian-occupied city Bakhmut. Hannah Maliar, Ukraine's deputy defense minister, announced the recapture of the village a day earlier, but was forced to issue a clarification after the 3rd Separate Assault Brigade disputed her report. On Thursday, the brigade said, quote, The statement about the liberation of Andrivka is wrongful and premature. At the moment, heavy fighting is ongoing near the settlements of Klishchivka and Andrivka. Such statements are harmful, pose a threat to the lives of personnel, and hinder combat missions. That prompted Maliar to state that a, quote, communication failure has occurred, adding that for now, certain success had been achieved, but that heavy fighting was still ongoing there. However, by Friday, the brigade announced the recapture of Andrivka, claiming they had left Russia's 72nd separate motorized rifle brigade, quote, in tatters. The brigade further claimed that in two days of fighting, it killed its counterpart's head of intelligence, three commanders, and almost all the infantry of the 72nd Brigade, along with officers and a significant amount of equipment. The allegations could not be verified, and Russia has yet to publicly comment on the reports. Thank you, Eric. We're going to begin with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Associated Press. Ukraine's forces have notched another victory in their belt with the recapture of Andrivka. The country's counteroffensive continues to advance and expel Russia from its territory. We counter that with an establishment-critical narrative, coming from responsible statecraft. After months of fighting, Ukraine has made very limited gains in its counteroffensive. The reality is that Ukraine will not likely drive Russia out of all its territory, and it needs to be realistic about how to bring the war to an end. And we're going to wrap this story up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that Ukraine will regain control of at least 50 kilometers of the Crimean Peninsula by January 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In a related story, Ukrainian President Zelensky is going to meet Biden at the White House. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Daily Sabah, Guardian, Al Jazeera, and Ukraine Forum. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to visit the White House and Capitol Hill next week, a U.S. official confirmed on Thursday. Zelensky, scheduled to visit the U.S. to deliver his first in-person speech at the U.N. General Assembly, will also meet U.N. Chief Antonio Guterres, who has pledged to do everything possible to revive the Black Sea grain deal. His appearance coincides with a debate in Congress over Biden's request to provide Ukraine with an additional $24 billion in military and humanitarian aid. When he visited the U.S. in December, Zelensky told Congress that the U.S. money to Ukraine wasn't charity, but an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. However, with an excess of $113 billion already approved and several Republicans voicing concerns about providing additional funding to Ukraine, Zelensky may have a tougher pathway this time. Meanwhile, the U.N. is expected to provide additional humanitarian aid to 11 million Ukrainians. According to the U.N. data, 7.3 million Ukrainians received humanitarian assistance in the first six months of this year. 
Adam, thank you for presenting those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative, and it's coming from Washington Post. Allowing Russia to triumph in Ukraine will embolden the Kremlin to launch further acts of aggression and to encourage America's enemies to do the same. Continuing U.S. funding for Ukraine is squarely in the country's national interest, preventing the spread of undemocratic regimes elsewhere. That's followed up with an establishment critical narrative provided by The Week. The U.S. not only continued to give Ukraine more money, but has sharply escalated the types of weapons it's sending. Such a trend is bringing the world closer and closer to World War III. And we may only know when we've crossed that precipice once it's too late. Now's the time for de-escalation. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative. It says there's a 4% chance that there will be a deadly clash between the U.S. and Russian armed forces before 2024. A jury has acquitted three in the Michigan Governor Whitner kidnapping case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Forbes, CNN, and Daily Caller. A jury in northern Michigan on Friday acquitted twin brothers Michael and William Knoll, as well as Eric Molitor, who had been accused of participating in the 2020 attempted kidnapping of Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Prosecutors had argued that the three men, who were charged with providing material support for a terrorist act and illegally possessing firearms, of scouting Whitmer's vacation home in Antrim County and conspiring in the plot to kidnap by participating in preparatory drills. Marking an end to the trial, in which eight men were charged on the state level and six on the federal level, a total of nine were convicted or pleaded guilty while five were acquitted. Among those found guilty were the plot's leader, Adam Fox, who was sentenced in December to 16 years in prison. The defense has argued that a heavy FBI presence in the plot constituted entrapment, with two of the defendants acquitted after their defense argued the FBI's encouragement of the plan constituted entrapment. At least 12 FBI informants or undercover agents were reportedly involved. During a retrial in August 2022, it was discovered that FBI informants allegedly shared a hotel room and smoked marijuana with one of the defendants, Barry Croft Jr., who had been sentenced to over 19 years in prison the December before. FBI informants reportedly outnumbered actual conspirators. Molitor and William Knoll both admitted to attending gun drills, though William said he and his brother Michael left the groups after hearing talk of using explosives. Molitor said he never believed the kidnapping would take place. William Knoll also said he didn't know he would be surveilling the house. All right, Eric, we're going to start the spins with the right narrative provided by the New York Post. This entire sham of a kidnapping plot, which was conveniently discovered right before the 2020 election, was all a ploy to make Republicans and Trump supporters look like violent criminals before America went to the polls. At least as many non-FBI agents and informants were a part of it as there were actual feds. The Democrats were successful in gaining consensus for this flawed presentation. So now it's time to admit that the FBI made it all up and entrapped innocent Americans for political purposes. We follow that up with a left narrative coming from Washington Post. While some of these men have now been acquitted by a jury of their peers, that doesn't mean the militia members heading to prison were innocent too. This was a violent attempt to use guns and explosives to kidnap a sitting U.S. governor. And both the FBI and the jurors understood the need to put convicted domestic terrorists behind bars. All of these men should be in jail. But that shouldn't stop America from celebrating the convictions that were won to protect democracy from far-right extremism. The U.S. Supreme Court limits government contacts with social media organizations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and Bloomberg. 
On Thursday, the Supreme Court put a lower court order that limited the Joe Biden administration's ability to communicate with social media companies regarding posts it believes to be misinformation on hold until September 22nd. The lower court's order was scheduled to take effect Monday, but the administration requested the hold while it prepares its appeal. The court gave plaintiffs until Wednesday to respond. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals previously issued the order as part of litigation against the administration from Republican Attorneys General from Missouri and Louisiana and a group of social media users. The plaintiffs echo a conservative allegation that the administration has coerced social media companies to censor right-wing postings in violation of the First Amendment right of freedom of speech. Many of the posts in question are related to COVID and several political topics that most of the posts in question are related to COVID and several political topics that include claims of fraud in the 2020 presidential election and the Hunter Biden laptop story. The Justice Department has denied the allegations, saying there's a fine line between, quote, persuasion and coercion. The original injunction from a Louisiana judge blocked all communication between the administration and social media platforms that urged content removal with the Fifth Circuit softening the injunction while still upholding it. Adam, thanks for presenting those facts. The first spin is a Republican narrative. It's coming from Newsweek. For too long, the American people have been suffering under pervasive government-led censorship, and the Supreme Court is now giving the administration the green light to continue that campaign. Luckily, this is just a temporary hold, and the Supreme Court will have a chance to end this massive violation of free speech rights when it hears the full case. And MSNBC's got the Democratic narrative, the idea that administration working with social media companies to stamp out misinformation and disinformation violates the First Amendment is an overreach by the court. Content moderation is the only way to stop the country from being overrun by falsehoods, and the government has a right to participate in that effort. The European Central Bank raises interest rates to an all-time high. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Euronews, Yahoo Finance, Reuters, and CNBC. On Thursday, the European Central Bank, or ECB, raised its key interest rate from 3.75% to 4%, as it claimed inflation was, quote, expected to remain too high for too long. The decision was the 10th interest rate increase in a row, reaching an all-time high since the establishment of the euro in 1999. It follows the ECB's benchmark deposit rate of minus 0.5% a little more than a year ago. Alongside the benchmark deposit rate, the ECB's refinancing rate, which provides most of the liquidity to the banking system, increased from 4.25 to 4.5. Its marginal lending facility, which is charged when banks borrow from the ECB, also climbed from 4.5 to 4.75. The ECB stated that based on its assessments, current interest rate levels are to make a substantial contribution to the timely return of inflation to its target levels. Revised forecast for average inflation within the eurozone now stand at 5.6% for 2023, 3.2% for 2024, and 2.1% for 2025. The ECB also projected the eurozone's economy to grow by 0.7% this year. Core inflation within the eurozone stood at 5.3% in August, while business activity within the bloc declined in August to its lowest level since November of 2020. Germany, the group's largest economy, is also forecast as the only major European state to contract this year. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start the spins with a narrative A provided by Bloomberg. The ECB's decision-making has led to many European policymakers finding themselves in a precarious economic situation. Revised forecasts are extremely optimistic. 
while the bank's vision echoes similar choices made in 2011 that ultimately caused a severe economic downturn within the eurozone. The ECB may well be slowly but surely walking into a stagflationary trap. We follow that up with Narrative B coming from FX Street. The ECB has chosen to accept a period of stagflation over the danger of a hard landing and deeper recession. The lesser of two evils, the market's overreaction to the ECB's decision-making is a shocking one that may well be counteracted by the U.S.'s own release of data in the coming days. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to stop the spins and say that there's a 15% chance that the ECB's deposit facility interest rate will be negative before 2033. In our final story today, Dubai police seize $1 billion worth of captagon amphetamines. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The National, Al Arabia, and Arab News. Dubai police have seized 86 million tablets of the amphetamine known as Captagon, valued at over $1 billion, smuggled into the country hidden in a shipment of doors and wooden panels. Six people were arrested in relation to the seizure. An international gang was allegedly planning to ship the illicit narcotics in five storage containers to the UAE. However, Dubai police reportedly detained the first suspect after he submitted to an extraction claim on three out of the five flagged containers. The officers then followed the shipment to an industrial area to apprehend the rest. The illicit drug, weighing more than 13 tons and hidden in 651 doors and 432 panels, was brought in on a cargo ship and was reportedly destined for another country. UAE's Interior Minister, Lt. Gen. Sheikh Saif bin Zayed, stated the UAE will take firm action against anyone who thinks of threatening the society's safety and stability. Captagon smuggling into the Gulf has been tracked back to Syria, where criminal gangs have reportedly set up massive production facilities to manufacture the drug. Adam, thank you for the facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Al Jazeera. The Arab Gulf states will have to reconsider normalization with the Syrian regime as Damascus, with the help of Iran and its proxies, continues to act as a rogue narco-state, polluting the entire region and beyond with illicit amphetamines. The connection between the Syrian regime and the drug trade is well documented. Curbing drug smuggling must be a top priority for the Arab League as it deals with Assad and his cronies. And the cradle is going to wrap up today's podcast with an establishment critical narrative. Though Gulf-funded media may seek to spread falsehoods that the Syrian government and Hezbollah are producing and smuggling Captagon, one should be dubious of these claims, considering the links with Saudi Arabia. Riyadh is one of the biggest consumers of illicit amphetamines, and Syria and Lebanon have become Captagon production hubs due to the U.S.-backed economic collapse via war and sanctions. This trade is very much a Gulf-oriented phenomenon. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 16th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on, and then the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.